0: Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, Licensed Professional Counselor. Welcoming back to the show for his second appearance is Dr. James Leiter, Ph.D. I had a lot of feedback about his first episode, so he's back again. This time, we're going to discuss depth work in ecotherapy and introducing James' own take on ecotherapy called Hilltending. You may have heard the first episode about eco-psychology and ecotherapy, and if you haven't, I recommend you listen to that episode first. However, if you're really into ecotherapy and Jungian concepts, this episode is for you. We will take a deep dive into those concepts. A little bit about Dr. James Leiter. He has a PhD and he has been facilitating nature-based archetypal experiences and integration around the world for many years. He has a PhD in depth psychology under Jungian and Archetypal Studies and a certificate in eco psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. His doctoral research provides a foundation for an archetypally patterned ecotherapy, promoting a regenerative relationship to the entire Earth community. I think whatever your exposure to things regarding the earth and nature and climate change, or whatever your opinion on it, I think you will really enjoy the balanced perspective that James brings in this interview. And you will also learn about ways that you might be able to get involved in some of James's workshops, his one-on-one work, or his group experiences. All right, let's get to the interview. And welcoming back to the podcast, Dr. James Leiter, Ph.D., after the first podcast we did on ecotherapy and ecopsychology, I had a tremendous response. And so I have brought you back today to talk about depth work and ecotherapy and introducing hill tending. Uh, welcome
1: back, James. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me back.
0: My pleasure. So last time for people that don't know much about ecotherapy, they should probably listen to the first podcast we did, which sets it up quite nicely. Uh, but for those of you who understand a little bit about eco-psychology and ecotherapy, this is a bit of a deeper dive into the subject material. And so I guess one of the first things is we probably should define what in the world depth
1: work is. Okay. Um, that's depth. D-E-P-T-H. A lot of times people say death, death work. No, not death work. No, no, it's not death work. It's depth work. Deep. We go deep. Um, and basically what that means is that we work with the unconscious aspects of psyche, things that we either are incapable of knowing or things that we have repressed or things that we've experienced that did not have enough intensity for it to really enter into consciousness. Um, and a lot of our relationship to nature, to the earth, is unconscious. And so a lot of the, the depth work in uh, my approach to eco-psychology and eco-therapy is trying to get at some of that unconscious material so that we are able to come into a greater consciousness of our actual relationship to the earth. Okay.
0: Yeah, that that sounds good. And I know that in your work, you're calling it hilt-tending, but I kind of want to give people a few examples of some depth work that they may have heard of through maybe the Jungian community. And some of the things we had kind of talked about were dream work, alchemical work, or alchemical eco-narrative, mindfulness practice or mindful practices, somatic exercises, such as even just walking or other things like that. Or um, some people uh, actually have what they call rituals that they do. So can you tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll kind of extend it into ecotherapy.
1: Okay. I might just kind of do both at the same time. Oh, sure. Let's go there. Um, so in hill tending, and hill tending is my approach to ecopsychology. That's what I call my approach. And what it is, uh, really, the, the simplest definition is that it is a nature-based archetypal facilitation, So what that means is that the unconscious, especially the collective unconscious, um, from a Jungian perspective, is is structured in the archetypes. And archetypes are universal structures of something that all humans experience at some point. So a prime example of that is the mother, the archetype of the mother. So everyone experiences the mother. It's a very powerful experience, for, for better or for worse, in our lives. And so there is an archetype of the mother. And the mo- the archetypes all have certain attributes and they can be creative or destructive. I tend to to kind of stay away from the idea of positive or negative. So archetypes have creative energies, they have destructive energies. And that's true with the mother too if you think about it. I think I mentioned it last time that the mother can be nurturing, caring, loving, but she can also be terrible. She can abandon, be abandoning, and and just you know downright mean and we've i think everyone has had both kinds of experiences with their mother and so this is an archetypal experience our relationship to the earth is also structured archetypally you know, our 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 experiences of nature of earth of the other than earth community are structured archetypally and a lot of it is unconscious and so in hill tending we will approach that aspect of our relationship or those aspects of our relationship through different Jungian methods. And the primary among those, as you mentioned, is dream work. That's one of the easiest, if most mysterious ways of kind of getting to unconscious material. So hill tending is based in in a lot of different concepts. It's based in Jungian concepts of uh, psychological development, uh, which is called individuation, It's rooted in the concept that the psyche is real, that the full psyche is real, not just the conscious aspects of psyche, but also the the unconscious aspects. So the the dream presents us with images, and that does not necessarily need to be visual images. It can be other forms of sensory images, but we experience images in our dreams that can be most easily understood as metaphors for some kind of a psychological process or psychological state. And so working with these dreams becomes a way to enter into a dialogue with the unconscious. And that comes, I think I mentioned last time, also a dream that I had of a buffalo and how that kind of corresponded and, and was associated with my relationship to the land in North America. So there's in another example. I was working with someone once. It was in a, in a park, and there was like the, the front end of the park was the public kind of thing where there's picnic tables, and there was a basketball court, I think. And the back end of the park was a more forested area with nature trails. But we were walking around the front end of the park and working on a dream. And in the, in the dream that we were working on, the client reported there was a lot of different spherical objects in the dream, a lot of circles and balls and things like that. And as we were walking, there were a group of people that were playing, uh, I think he called it bocha ball. I know it as boules because when I lived in France, that's where I learned about boules. So, what, what you know, they were throwing these little balls around, trying, you know, and chasing after these balls and moving around and, and picking them up and throwing them and trying to get them close to the marker. They were working with these spherical objects. And so working with dreams, especially when you're outside, as we discussed in some length last time, the whole world joins in. And so there will be these moments of synchronicity that help to bring clarity to what the dream is saying from an eco-psychological perspective. So what is this dream saying about my relationship to the natural world? Where does it, where does it come from? Where does it want to go? And so dream work is one of the the, the primary um, methods that I use in hill tending. Another one you mentioned... <clears throat> Excuse me. Was alchemical eco narrative, and so Jung was so. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? alchemy was very central to his psychology. He found in in alchemy a historical prefiguration. What he called a prefiguration of his psychology, and when you think about it, it was. Alchemy wants to take lead and turn it into gold, right? So it takes a raw material and turns it into something finished, something better. It's a very transformative process. So another way to get at the unconscious aspects of our relationship to nature is to begin with the raw material, right? And that is the experiences that we have had in nature. And so I will help people go back and remember experiences that they've had in nature from you know, over the course of their life. You know, what was the first memory that you have or significant memory that you have of an experience in, in nature? What happened? Where were you? Who were you with? Things like that. And to kind of move through a a progression through their life. And and you get a lot of information through this. Howard Kleinbell, who wrote the book Ecotherapy, kind of coined the term ecotherapy, called this the earth story. So I've taken it and moved it from in hill tending from a diagnostic tool to uncover some kind of traumatic event in the past that's causing issues in the present to become an alchemical tool, a transformative tool to understand what is happening in the past, but more importantly to understand what is happening in the present and where might it be leading us. <coughs> Excuse me um so it's it's moving towards what the alchemists called the philosopher's stone if if our relationship to the earth be, becomes the philosopher's stone the finished desirable a the the healthy relationship to the earth becomes the desirable outcome so we're transforming all of the the raw materials of our relationship to to the earth into something new hopefully something better because there is so much dysfunction dysfunction in our relationship to the earth, culturally, and a lot of times individually, most of the time individually, it's so hard to get away. I have to say that there, that the, the way our culture is structured, it is really easy to participate in things that are destructive to the earth. And so becoming more aware of our relationship to the earth helps us to not only experience a, a greater sense of wellness and well-being, it also helps to change the way that we are on the earth and the way we participate or choose not to participate in certain kinds of behavior. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, just for people not familiar with alchemy, yeah, Jung was inspired by the, the processes of these alchemists, even though obviously the, the, the point wasn't the literal quest of their right, trying to right. turn lead into gold, but it was their processes and their journals and their philosophical musings of attempting to turn these things. And for a lot of alchemical or uh, alchemists, uh, it also became more symbolic and was more of a process of them working out their own psychic material. And I know James Hillman has a, I think like a nine-part lecture that you can purchase about alchemy in psychology, uh, which I found I've listened to the whole thing. I found it tremendous because you talked about all the different stages and all the different colors and how that relates to the psyche uh, and our relationship with the self. And of course, you're taking it and, and turning it even into more of the relationship with uh, the natural world.
1: Well, and as we talked about last time, the the distinction between the self and the natural world, is it really there? I, I don't believe that it is. I, I believe that the the... the process of ecological individuation towards the ecological self and the ecological self is where nature and human nature meet
0: correct i think perhaps though we experience the separation and thus we have that feeling people get and i remember when i lived in chicago um we used to just call it like just the city energy would just make you crazy and i remember that people would Say this every three or four weeks. I just have to get the hell out of Chicago, and I either got to I got to take the train up to Evanston because Evanston has a lot more uh, trees and forests and parks. It's where Northwestern University is. Or, of course, a lot of people who had more funding and means would buy a house in southern Michigan along the coastline between Saugatuck and um, Indiana and they would uh, go to their cabin or their retreat center in Michigan just for the weekend, just to get away from that city energy, because you could just feel it pulsing and get into that healing uh, natural world. And and so I remember that, but then even more so, I I lived and I still sometimes uh, for part of the year, I'm in Phoenix for months at a time uh, due to some work. And I notice in Phoenix, it is a very sprawling and unforgiving landscape. Of course, my friend has called it uh, a testament to man's arrogance to build the large, one of the largest cities in the U.S. in the middle of a place that doesn't have much natural water occurring. But um, in Phoenix, there's almost an obsession with uh, being in the natural world. And, and um, it's, it's almost a pastime there that you see just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people uh, every weekend and every morning, really getting onto hiking trails or biking trails or mountain biking trails and just getting out of that urban habitat, which sprawls for miles and has more than six million uh, people in that uh, small area. So Um, it's that sort of there's this longing and so you're right we aren't separate but i think we can feel the separateness due to the structures we've built and the and the microclimates we've built especially in phoenix during the summer it um if you're out in the desert it doesn't get that it doesn't get as hot and at night it cools off but in the urban areas the concrete and the asphalt and the cars and the constant people running their air conditioning which produces heat um keep the ambient temperatures uh, over 100 degrees uh, all day and all night. And that can be very oppressive to people. So um, I agree with you, but I I do think we've done some things to feel separate from nature. And I I think our ego and the fact that we think we can continually strip the earth of its resources without any sort of uh, consequences have uh, separated us from the natural world and made us seem more like a virus or a parasite.
1: That's what Paul Shepard called ecological madness, And that was one of the um, probably probably the one of the earliest framing questions of the modern discipline of eco psychology is why do humans persist in destroying the planet that gives them life, right? And it's you mentioned a lot of different landscapes there, which is another important aspect of hill tending that I'd like to mention. That and and different people respond differently to different kinds of landscapes, right? So I, I love being in the mountains. I love being in the forests. Some people love being in the desert. Some people hate being in the desert. Um, I've lived in Europe, I lived in Europe for most of my adult life. I've only been back in, the, in my home, the US, for 10 years. And so I experienced a lot of different landscapes over there, right, in the rolling hills in Germany or the semi-arid uh, climate of uh, south, the uh, south of France. And there's a lot of, there is even going out of the city into the natural world, there's a different energy in different kinds of landscapes. And so hill tending tries to be aware of the client's natural tendency to respond more to uh, a certain kind of landscape or the other and work with that. Because at the end of the day, that is another image of that person's relationship to the earth, right? What does it say about me that I like mountains better? I grew up in Nebraska. right? there's no you might get some sand hills way out west, but there's where I where I grew up there was there's no mountains. So why do I feel most comfortable in mountains? That you know that, that, that what is that telling me? I mean that's a question that I've I've worked with a lot in my own relationship to to the earth. And so hill tending takes these things into account. Um so there's Another uh, one of the practices that you know you, you listed them off uh, when earlier, the somatic aspects of hill tending, even if it's just walking through the forest. One of the one, one form of ecotherapy is about regaining a muscle memory that might might be lost from sitting sitting too much, being in a cubicle too much, watching too much TV. Or you know anything like that? Just getting out and moving is already a form of ecotherapy. But there are also uh, ecotherapeutic practici- practitioners that practice yoga or tai chi or other somatic exercises um, outside. I've danced on the, on a, a beach in, in Southern California. I'm not a big dancer, but doing having that experience as part of a group was pretty remarkable. You know, I re- rediscovering ranges of movement and and so. Ecotherapy can also be useful for people who have physical limitations or are recovering from from an injury. So there's a lot of, like we talked about it quite a bit last time, so I won't go too much into it. There's a lot of different forms of ecotherapy. And so hilltending tries to account for that as well.
0: And so, yeah, and hilltending is your uh, basically oh. approach to ecotherapy that you do uh and primarily in michigan but also over the internet uh with one-on-ones and also you do one-on-one outside you've done some inside just when you're first meeting people and of course you do the groups that are forthcoming um uh, again uh, that are coming up soon but can you tell me a little bit about a bit we we touched on the words last time but the terra-centric and the geocosmological approaches in our relationship to our habitat the earth and and how, how that maybe gets into the discussion of holding the opposites.
1: Okay, absolutely. So the simply put, the terra-centric is, is filled with grief, eco-grief, what I call eco-grief. And it, that's, that includes a, a range of emotions about our relationship to the earth. It can be grief, it can be anger, shame, guilt, fear. Um, and, and the other side of that is the geocosmological that is filled with awe and celebration at being part of the unfolding cosmos. So the, the geocosmological does not stop at the Earth, but considers the fact that the cosmos, the universe, is the habitat of the Earth, and so it takes that into consideration as well. And it's hard to look up into the night sky and and look out at, at the, the galaxy and the universe and not be filled with awe. Um, and so this... The geocosmological, you, if, if you've ever read Brian Swim or Thomas Berry, that's really a very, very strong, probably the original expression in written form at least, of the geocosmological in in our modern era. Um, so there's a sense of opposites between those. So um, what, how can I feel grief on one side and awe and astonishment and celebration on the other side? Right. So a lot of times what people will do is tend to inhabit, fully inhabit one or the other. And that brings a lot of issues. Because what I'm doing when I'm fully overwhelmed by the one or the other, I have completely lost sight of the other. Right? And so that's an imbalance. And our relationship to the earth, generally speaking, is in a state of imbalance. And we tend to go to the one or the other. And so in in my doctoral research, what I did was analyze hundreds of written accounts of people's relationship to nature. And these these two approaches are what came through. And so through the depth work, through the archetypal facilitation, we are allowed to become more consciously aware of the other side. Right? And, and to integrate them into something new where I can go and say, you know what? Yeah, I feel really bad about climate change. I feel really bad about the pollution and the destruction of the earth. But I also am just astonished at this story that is unfolding, right? And I, I'm, I become able to be filled with both. And it's, it's my belief, and, and my research supported this, is that the terracentric that grief and that 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 fear and shame and anger is only possible because of the geocosmological if we weren't if we weren't capable of feeling that awe we would not feel the grief at losing it and the problem is we don't want to feel that grief we want to. humans tend to want to feel good all the time right we don't ever want to be sick we don't want to feel at, you know at dis-ease, we want to feel good. And so the the geocosmological is is kind of easy to move into, but it's not easy because then we hear the news or we see something that that makes us sad because we love the earth. We are in love with the earth. We are in love with nature. E.O. Wilson called it biophilia, that we are enchanted by life and and lifelike processes. And Lovelock talked about the life, life-like processes of the of the earth in the Gaia theory, right? And so when we're, we're filled with that love, we're in love with, with the earth and with nature and with the other than earth community. And then we see something or hear something that lets us know that is threatened, that is at risk, and we're filled with this incredible grief. And so the the part of the, the hill-tending approach is to become aware of both aspects of how or how I am experiencing both aspects of, of my relationship to the earth, and to bring them together and reintegrate them, because I do feel both, whether I want to or not. Jung said, you know, feeling, a lot of times we don't have feelings, feelings have us. And it's true, we can be overwhelmed by these feelings. And so running from them, repressing them, avoiding them, distracting ourselves, works for a while, but eventually at some point that complex... That unconscious complex will rise up and take over without a permission and will be filled with, with a, a maybe a sen- sentimentality that isn't really supported by authentic emotion, but it's just a compens- compensation for not wanting to feel the other side of that. And so Hilltending brings us back down to earth, as it were, it, it allows us to have our feet on the earth and our head on head in the clouds, or in the universe even.
0: That is a very good uh, illustration of, uh, of the beginning points of both of those subjects. And I think people, if they're wondering what these two things are, if you just go on the internet and go to a chat forum such as Reddit, you will see people uh, basically hysterically upset and angry at the... Uh, current state of the world uh, and how that uh, as one friend who writes about these things told me, my uh, personal recycling uh, isn't going to do anything because the 200 largest corporations are the largest polluters of and if uh, and what they're doing is never is outpacing uh, any positive thing I'm doing. And I felt very depressed about that. Um, you can see people ranting about that and at the same time, you can also witness if you go on social media, there's these there's people that have sort of devoted their lives to sort of getting away from it all and sort of just staying in nature all the time. And I'm not saying that's a that's a neither I'm not trying to judge either of these things, but you see them kind of just always talking about nature and the awe of it, but never really addressing the destruction. Um, and or addressing any issues or the fact that their ATV riding may be doing something or their or some of their habits or or just you know whatever they're they're up to so you can see sort of these uh, you know responses to what's going on as the earth is constantly changing and with our influence and uh, and other influences and I, I, I think in in my work I kind of relate that to traumatic you know what do, what are humans do in the face of trauma and if you're on a planet, and you don't have control of the fact that it's being rapidly changed to the point where, you know, in some depictions in the next 50 years, uh, coastal cities could be underwater, islands could be underwater. Um, you know, that's not something we want to hear about, uh, and it makes us feel uh, completely out of control, helpless, listless, uh, almost nihilistic in some ways, but also terrified and... Um, I think the terra-centric approach of grief, shame, and anger and fear about the destruction of the habitat, but also the the geocosmological approaches, are both in in, in my mind sort of a traumatic uh, response, or a response to trauma of the human who um, doesn't want to participate in destruction, wants to participate in in being part of the Earth family, but feels um, disempowered.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, there. There, Joanna Macy and Glenn Dinning in the I believe it was in the late sixties, started a series of workshops with some other facilitators, where people were encouraged to share their their true and authentic feelings about the state of the world, and um, not only the state of the earth, but also the threat of nuclear war and other issues that were going on at the time. And what they found was that the confession of what Pierre Jeannet called the pathogenic secret was already therapeutic. Just going and saying, yeah, I feel horrible about climate change or about the pollution or about the the policymakers in Washington Washington or other capitals of the world that are making these, these policy decisions that are not helping things, that are maybe even making things worse. I'm angry and i mean there were small group workshops that were repeated successfully time and again over around the world that once that pathogenic secret was confessed in a group and witnessed by other people that was already there was already a healing effect because we don't want to feel them and we sure don't want to talk about them and you know we're taught we need to be self-sufficient we need to be You know, self-independent and 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 able to to determine. You know, be the uh, creators of our own destiny, and to go and say, you know what, I'm helpless about this, right? I I saw. I remember one time there was uh, a crow in the road, sitting by the body of a dead crow that had got hit by a car, and it was just sitting there and it might have been a, a bit of projection or a bit of anthropomorphizing but to me it looked like that crow was mourning right and it, it was it hurt me i felt really bad because i was witnessing another living creature in the process of grieving the loss of a partner i couldn't tell anybody about that at the time you know who who, who does that who who feels bad for a crow well i do right and so and just being able to talk about it freely is already therapeutic and so in in the hill tending sessions there hill tending wants to create a safe space where we can engage our authentic relationship to the earth and not feel obligated to participate in the relationship that's been given to us by society or by family or by peers right i want to i want to experience my relationship and when i experience my relationship i begin to understand I'm not suffering from terminal uniqueness. Everybody feels these things. And so at the same time, I get closer to myself, but at the same time, it depersonalizes it and it moves it onto the collective level and I can understand what's going on a little bit better. Moving to the farm last year allows me to understand industrial agriculture better. Doesn't mean I like it, doesn't mean I agree with it, doesn't mean I'm not aware of the damage that it's doing, but at least I understand the motivation for the mechanization of of, the, of our farms and the, the industrialized nature of our farms. I mean, I have a small farm. It's only five and a half acres, but getting work done at this place is made so much easier by having a tractor. I mean, it's night and day. I go about it intelligently. I don't just... So to cruise from one side of the farm to the other on the tractor, there has to be something that needs to be done that I can't do otherwise. And so the, the, a lot of it's not about moving out to the wilderness and, and, and escaping it all. It's about becoming more aware. And once I'm more aware, I can make better decisions. And when I understand why our society has developed, or at least a little bit of why and how our society has developed into this juggernaut of ecological de- destruction, I can, I can have a different conversation with that part of our culture. right? We don't need to be separated into the corporate industrial camp and the, and the, the so-called tree hugger green camp, right? We need to have a conversation. And, and so becoming more aware of our relationship will empower us to empro- approach that conversation from a completely different basis and hopefully with better results.
0: Yes, I think that is a very um, eloquent way of putting these possibly opposite concepts together. And so uh, we're talking all about eco-psychology and and the hill-tending that you, uh, as you call it, for your approach to ecotherapy. And last time we talked a lot about how ecotherapy could benefit people that are looking for just to go deeper in themselves and and get connected more to themselves and of course with their uh the, with nature which of course are in in your mind is indistinguishable. We talked about people that wanted an alternative to uh, counseling because they didn't really feel like they wanted to just focus on problems. They wanted to empower themselves. We talked about. How ecotherapy could be beneficial in addition to people already in traditional counseling or psychotherapy to go a little bit deeper in their work. And I do think that ecotherapy is for people that are looking for more depth. And thus, of course, being associated yourself with the Jungian uh, psychology uh, camp and, and depth psychology work, um, I do believe this fits in quite well. Um, and so, with that being said, um, what are some things that you think could help people? I know we talked about um, people feeling more whole when they, when they work on their relationship of the self to their ecological self. It brings a sense of eco-psychological wholeness. Could you touch on that?
1: So the, the self, the archetype of self from um, a Jungian perspective, without the ecological part first the self is the, the image of wholeness right jung said it's it's not god but it's the image that we have of god so it's 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 wholeness it's where all things meet it's perfection um it's, it's where opposites are integrated so two of the the main archetypes in jungian psychology are the anima and the animus the, masu- the feminine and the masculine respectively and in the self though they they are integrated right and so Moving towards an ecological self means integrating the terracentric and the geocosmological into something new. It means being a, becoming able to integrate the conversation between industry and ecologically-minded people and to, to empower a different kind of conversation because it's the ecological self is where all things meet. Right, it's where my resistance to using fossil fused fuels to work my farm and the recognition of the power of that and why that's where the, the, those meet there in the ecological self as well. Um, so it's it's the process of eco-psychological development is what I call ecological individuation, kind of building off of, of Jung's term of individuation. And that's it's a process of getting there. And it might we'll probably never become fully conscious of the ecological self. Because as you as you kind of alluded to, we perceive whether there is a separation between us and nature or not, we perceive there to be. And that's how we we gain our sense of identity, right? As we grow and, and develop as humans, we separate from the mother. We separate from different peer groups, et cetera, cetera. And this is how we gain our sense of identity. And so I I shared last time a story about the deer watching the dogs and I move the sheep. So there was a moment of recognition, but there was not a moment where I could see through the deer's eyes, right? So there was, there is a separation there, right? Without that, I would just, you know, dissolve into... The into the void when I say that there's no separation between humans and nature, what I really mean is that humans are a member of the earth community, right? Where we are a part of the earth, we're not apart from as you know, autonomous individuals. Yes, we have to experience a sense of separation between us and others. So the ecological self, though, is where those things can meet and be experienced as one. All right? I can close my eyes. I don't even need to close my eyes. But I can imagine into being a part of a larger whole. And so, we, again, uh, Lovelock and the Gaia hypothesis, right, that the earth, he said that it, the earth is like a living organism. It's self-organizing and different as you know attributes of what life has, and that's how Earth behaves. Later theorists went on to say it's not like a living organism; it is a living organism. Whether it's like or is, I'm a part of that. You're a part of that. Humans are a part of that. And so, becoming more aware of that already eases the discomfort of alienation that we have developed over eons, right, of development. So the ecological self, basically, it's where everything meets and becomes whole. And it's it's a process of becoming aware and more conscious of our relationship to the earth that allows us to approach that state. The ecological self is both a process and a state. So the, the process of individuation is also part of the self, so it's the self is really difficult to talk about, right? It's 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 I don't want to say the holy grail in quotation you know air quotes, um, but it kind of is because that's where everything meets, right? It's the I was watching a documentary about the Hopi and and their origin story, and they were sent basically or they went on a pilgrimage to find the center place. To where they would make their home and it's that center place that's it's archetypal right you have the stone circles in europe you have you know circle archaeoastronomy all over the world and there's always in the center there's always something you know a focal point point. and so what we're what the ecological self is that center point it's the center place of our relationship to the earth but it's also the circumference at the same time. So it, it, it's really hard to to, to to talk about, to describe, but we do, we can experience it. We can't experience moments of, of unity. We can't experience the phenomenology, the the events and, and things that happen in the world as being expressions of that ecological self just as much as I am or as you are. So it, it's it's a vague concept, like all archetypes are so the way we experience the ecological self is through images, right? Like in dream images, that dream that I mentioned earlier about this, all the spherical objects, those were representations of the self, or they can be engaged as, as symbolic representations of the self, of wholeness.
0: Yes, and I do think, you know, if people want to learn more about the self, there are so many podcasts and books uh, from the Jung and the Jungian, well, the Jungian people that have kind of followed Jung, he doesn't have any podcasts out, but he's quoted in these podcasts. Um,
1: <laughs> to learn but he more does about have, that. he does have some interviews on YouTube that are, true. are well worth watching. And there's yeah. a film, I believe, on Amazon, where he's not in the film, but von um, Franz is in there, I believe, and other early Jungian analysts. Ah, uh, yes.
0: Okay, yeah. And there's a, and I've even heard there's even more films coming out. Uh, from other analysts they've interviewed that were working with Jung. So there's a lot there, um, but I want to make sure we kind of come back to the, the full concept here, which is that you're offering um, services um, and uh, that are more or less kind of like consulting or mentoring or coming alongside people that are wanting to strengthen their relationship to themselves, um, stre- to work through their. Uh, their feelings and their emotions and their experiences uh, with the natural world. And in your ecotherapy, it's called hill tending. And I know uh, right now uh, you're working on some uh, group experiences that should be coming up. uh, But right now you're also offering uh, in-person and remote uh, individual meetings. Can you talk a little bit about that before we close?
1: Right, right. So I I can meet uh, with people and work on on, um, what we've talked about today, and any other, any number of other topics that that come up. What's important is that there will be uh, meetings outside, right? Initially, we'll probably meet inside for um, various reasons, but it will move outside. And we, we can meet in different natural areas around Michigan, in Grand Rapids, Lansing, Battle Creek, Kalamazoo, a lot of different places, Um, or remotely we can just do the talking part online on Zoom or Skype or just on the phone or whatever, Um, and then I will help you into certain kinds of exercises to do on your own outside, or conversely, bringing nature inside. There's a lot of different things that we can do.
0: And I think the important part for listeners to understand is that this is experiential
1: it is. This is Absolutely. experiential.
0: This is not just talking over problems. This is not psychotherapy. It's ecotherapy, which is different. We talked about that in the first podcast.
1: And it comes back to the idea that the, the actual ecotherapist is nature. Right? From, from that perspective, I'm a facilitator or a mentor, a witness. But the actual therapist will be nature. And the ecological self that is always present whether or not we are conscious of it.
0: <clears throat> and I think for those listeners who are interested, um, this is an experience. This is not an intellectual exercise. So I would uh, strongly recommend people finding out about your uh, written materials and also contacting you directly. So what's the best way for people to get a hold of you right now?
1: Well, right now, um, you can contact me at my website uh, that will be in the, in the show notes, I guess, Okay, and uh, or by yeah. you know contact any contact form and in, in those in, in the links provided in those notes.
0: Yes, and uh, Health for Life Counseling here in Grand Rapids are partnering with Dr. James Leiter to promote ecotherapy and eco psychology practices, and so he also has a section on our website, so you can also uh, find him that way as well. And I really encourage you to do so. Thank, you. Th- thanks, James, for coming on the show again.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me again.
0: This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you are a therapist and are looking to become EMDR trained, I would recommend EMDR training solutions. They are an amazing group of people that provide trainings online and eventually in person to help you become EMDR trained and eventually EMDRIA certified. You can use the code INTENTIONAL, that's the word INTENTIONAL, to get $100 off, if you purchase a training, especially if it's your first training, a little bit about what I've been up to. I am almost a full Emdria consultant and I can provide consultation hours and have a group going every Wednesday. So let me know if you would like to be a part of that consultation group. Also, I have a course online called what do we do now for the parents of young adults, which you can find on Udemy. There will be a link in the show notes. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guests. And while these are based upon literature they have read, their experience in their respective fields, and personal experiences, these viewpoints should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color, feeling down, stressed out, or overwhelmed? Text STEVE, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741 and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org? You can order online from the comfort of your own home while supporting a local bookstore near you that is brick and mortar. If you are not a member of a mental health Counselors Association, I highly recommend that you join, such as the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association, which you can find on the internet or any other state which you live in. There are a lot of things that go into keeping counseling available to the public. So I really encourage you to get involved in your local organization. Until next time, I'm wishing everyone a safe and peaceful week.
2: Search of a prey, neither beast nor human. In my philosophy.